next up to speak, uh, nutrition and cancer are very important. As we've got cancers, we've got nutritionist Honor Gerty, please. Thanks, Massey. Okay, so my name is Honor Gerty and I'm a nutritional therapist. So my role in the, the centre is to give advice um, and try and keep it simple, practical advice to, to cancer patients. Um, thank you very much for inviting me to speak here today. I absolutely love love being involved and love being part of the family, as we call ourselves. And that is very much the feeling you get. Everybody works so well together. Um, and obviously going forward, and Katrina, you you touched on it as well. It's just so important that we all have to, we all have to start to work together, um, you know, if we're going to get through this epidemic that cancer is now becoming or is now. Um, so from my point of view, my role is, as I said, to speak about nutrition. So primarily the diet, but not just the diet. Nutrition is a lot more than just diet. Okay, It encompasses all the cornerstones of good health. So I will also speak about lifestyle because um, exercise is very important. Sleep is very important. Um, you know, maybe stress in somebody's life, it's key. Um, obviously, following a, a cancer diagnosis is a very traumatic, very traumatic for for um, a person, very traumatic for their whole family. So um, it's really important to embrace that. And it's only by touching on all the cornerstones can somebody, um, you know, really, truly it, for overall health and well-being is, is critical. So the importance of nutrition, as I see it in, in and what I do in the in the cancer centre, is first of all, um, you know, to 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 deal with the very real side effects. So anybody here that's on their cancer journey or are a member of their family has been been through it with them, you know. We hear all the symptoms I, I'm constantly hearing in the centre, you know, fatigue, um, digestive issues, um, nausea, inability, loss of appetite, uh, loss of weight, a very real um, symptom, or maybe weight gain for others. So, you know, this is where I feel, um, you know, I can make a real difference to, to somebody's lives. I can't, unfortunately, I cannot cure cancer. I would never claim to. But what I can do is make... A, a real difference to the side effects. Um, and, and, you know, some of the side effects, as I said, like fatigue. So, you know, what, how can I help with that? So in nutrition, we believe it's very much important, you know, the foods that you're eating will have a huge role to play, as well as actually the way that you're eating. So, you know, I will discuss with, with um, patients the types of foods that they're eating, obviously, you know, the sugary types of foods, the stimulants, that's all going to have a negative effect and only worsen fatigue in, in the long run. Um, you know, unfortunately, eating foods of these as well as fatigue, you're going to affect your blood sugar levels. So obviously, when they go high after consuming these types of foods or consuming these stimulants, they're also going to to drop because obviously what goes up must come down. So then when they do drop, your real symptoms of brain fog, low mood, cravings. These are symptoms I'm hearing all the time as well that come as you're going through your, your cancer treatment. Um, you know, so it's removing what's only adding to that. Um, and obviously cravings, I see it, you know, somebody who's suffering from cravings, you're going to, it leads to overeating and then you may have the issue of of weight gain. Um, 
really critical to try and maintain weight um, going through cancer treatment. So we don't want a cancer patient losing weight and we don't want a cancer patient gaining it because obviously um, either or is going can lead to other conditions in the body as well. Uh, very much I see, you know, the work you can do on a one-to-one -one is, is critical. Um, because no two people, you know, in nutritional therapy, we believe no two people are the same. No two people in this room are the same. No two cancer patients are the same. No two breast cancer patients are the same. Okay, so no, there's no one fix for every breast cancer patient. So this is the beauty of the centre, is that somebody can come and sit in front of me and we can chat together and I can find out what works for that person and we tailor it. And they come back, they continue to come back, which is, I think is just an amazing service that they come back to see me every time I'm there if they like. Like that's, that, you know, that is brilliant. As Katrina said, they're without a dietitian in the hospital. Um, so it's crucial that they have somebody to speak to when it, when it comes to, to diet. Um, you know, some of the things I've heard in, in the past is where patients have been maybe left afraid to eat you know, because they just don't know what they should be eating, so they just stop eating altogether. Our patients, obviously, that can't eat because they lose their appetite, you know, taste changes, um, sores in their mouth. So, you know, by coming up with simple suggestions like trying to make soups, trying to make smoothies, just making everything that they are able to eat as nutritious um, as possible can have a, a, a real impact. Um, digestive issues are, are are very real as well. So just explaining to uh, to the client, you know, the importance of making sure that you know they're they're having good hydration. So you know, water, herbal teas. Herbal teas are a lovely one to introduce into the diet as well because you can actually use them therapeutically. So you know, somebody doesn't sleep well, introduce chamomile into into the diet. Somebody has digestive issues, fennel. I suppose that just reminds me of another patient we had in the centre um, who came with um, one of their huge side effects and it was affecting their sleep was heartburn. So when we looked at their, their food diary, um, I noticed they were drinking a lot of peppermint tea. And peppermint tea is fabulous, you know, for, for one for one patient, but for another, it can cause heartburn. So by being able to tell her to remove the peppermint tea, that symptom was alleviated, you know, and that had a, a you know, a great impact. So, you know, it's, it's just fabulous what, what the centre can do. From the exercise point of view, I can refer them on to the gym, from the stress relieving, there's so many stress relieving techniques that I will recommend that they that they go and avail of as well. So, you know, the centre is just one building, but it encompasses all the different cornerstones of health. Um, and that's why I think it, it works so well. And it's amazing. And I mean, it should be attached to every oncology hospital. It's fantastic that Banlaslow and Portiuncla has it um, and it couldn't be any closer. It's like as if it's on the same grounds, you know, meant to be. So, um, I just hope going forward that we can even, uh, you know, work even closer together because obviously that that has to be done to to make a real difference. OK, so again, thank you for inviting me to speak today. Thank you very much, Honor. Uh, that was very good. And you are a great help to us. So thank you very much. Our next speaker is uh, Lisa Looney, uh, physiotherapist, exercise and cancer. Welcome, Lisa. 
Hello, everybody. Um, I must say I'm absolutely delighted to get the opportunity to say hopefully only a few words, but I might have a lot of stuff up here. Well, I'm delighted to be here for Frances' feedback from her study. And um, um, I suppose just to say that I don't work, I work in Portion Club, I'm a physio. Um, I work with Katrina, but I don't just work exclusively with people who've had cancer. I have a real passion, I suppose, for the prevention of inactivity and the problems that arise as a result of not being active. And hopefully um, everybody will be able to take some bit of inspiration um, from what I have to say and maybe just get out and get a little bit more active. I'm sorry, you're not really going to be able to see this slide too clearly, but basically everything I want to say is kind of on this slide. Um, what are the benefits of physical activity? It tells us here what we should be doing, what it prevents and what it promotes. Um, but basically, um, I can only read it myself, but <laughs> basically physical activity promotes and benefits health. It can reduce your risk of developing type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, um, joint and back pain, can reduce your risk of developing cancers and can reduce your risk of falls, depression and dementia. Um, among everybody here, who would consider themselves physically active and exercising to uh, their desired level? Not, not too many. A few, show, a show a few hands, and that's brilliant to see. And so it is. I see they're all the respondents have been male. Um, so yeah, I think there's always potential to improve for, for for all of us. And really, I suppose the exercise guidelines. Do, do you, are you familiar with what they are? Aside from reading them up there, do you all know that it's it's for 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 good health? We're advised or we're recommended that we get 150 minutes of um, moderate intensity exercise in a week. So that's five 30-minute sessions. Um, but in addition to that, there's a lot of growing evidence out there that really we should be including resistance training. So exercise to kind of promote and build muscle bulk and maintain our muscle bulk. And we need to do resistance training twice a week. Um, and then as people age, as they get a little bit older, then balance training is really, really important as well because um, um, to, to reduce your risk of falls and falls can, can, can cause significant amount of damage, really, uh, fear of falling, fractures, soft tissue injuries. Uh, so this here says it really nicely. Um, this one, I think, even says it a little bit nicer. Um, this is a slide, an Irish slide. It's from the Irish, from Tilda, the Irish Longitudinal Study in Aging. And um, following on from what Helen was saying earlier on, um, you know, there's a, there's a high proportion of distress, stress, anxiety, um, um, you know, in, in getting a cancer diagnosis and in dealing with, I suppose, the um, the whole treatment following, um, following your diagnosis of cancer. And we see here really nicely from the Irish study that people who exercise are less likely to develop depression by 23% and less likely to develop a generalized anxiety disorder by 54%. And that's a really huge um, um, response, I suppose, to exercise. What I really like about this slide, though, is that I suppose for a lot of people, um, starting an exercise program can seem like an insurmountable task. There can be a lot of fear around starting exercise, particularly if somebody isn't overly active. And I think what's really nice is up here at the top of it, uh, some is good, more is better. So, you know, you can start small. It's never too late to start. So it doesn't matter when you start, as long as you start and every minute counts. And that's really, really important. 150 minutes might seem like a massive amount of exercise to somebody who's who's doing nothing, but every minute counts. And, you know, I suppose there's a lot of evidence out there now that every little 10 minute burst adds up and it is very significant. Uh, what kind of exercise? I've kind of gone through this already. We need to get a mixture of cardiovascular resistance and balance exercises. Um, as somebody said earlier on, there isn't a one size fixes all for, for, for any kind, for anybody really. Um, to promote kind of 
adherence to exercise, it's important that it's enjoyable. Uh, we all have different lives, we all have different interests and, um, you know, we all would prefer different types of exercise. So it must be enjoyable. Some people prefer the social aspect of being in a group, being in a gym, being in classes. But as was alluded to earlier on, some people prefer that solitary space time for themselves, time to think. And I would be one of those. And uh, so I would. So, you know, because we say it's good for you, it doesn't mean that what we have on offer is what's everybody's solution. Access is a big thing. Um, you know, some people have, have can drive, some people live in the country, some people live in urban settings. It's important that when we take on an exercise program, that it's something that we can continue really and access. If we don't have a car, if, we, if we're not able to get into a class, we're not able to get into a group, then it's important that people have an exercise program, I suppose, that they can do um, from within their own home or within their own community. And then equipment, not everybody has the finances or the spaces to buy um, pieces of equipment. And sometimes pieces of equipment can become uh, big dust collectors. So really just to bear that in mind that giving somebody a set of weights doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to, um, <laughs> to use them. Absolutely. Um, I think this is a nice picture. Um, there's a lot of fear among people around resistance training. People don't want to bulk up and they, they, they feel that, that using weights or using resistance um, is really only for the elite athlete. But there's a, a growing amount of evidence out there that we need to include resistance training as part of our exercise program. And as I said, twice a week. So for the younger people and those kind of, you know, up to the age of 25, using weights is building muscle mass. And um, no more than building bone, bone density. Um, the more you build, the greater reserve you have when the natural decline takes place. And unfortunately, it's happening to all of us. It starts from around the age of 45 that we kind of start to lose um, the strength and the, um, the, the the composition, I suppose, of our muscle fibres. So resistance training in kind of middle age, from around the age of 45 on, is, is really focused at trying to maintain that muscle bulk and that muscle mass. Um, in, in the older population then really it's, there's a natural, um, natural aging of muscle causes the muscle fibers to get smaller, to get less strong. And that happens to everybody. So it does, but exercise and using resistance, um, and weights in kind of the, you know, the 65 plus can actually slow down the natural aging process of muscles. And it's really important that we maintain as much muscle mass as we can. That's what keeps us strong. That's what keeps us fit. That's what keeps us functional and able to, you know, carry out our, 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 our daily activities. So during the cancer journey, um, when, when is it okay to start exercising? It's never too late, as we said earlier on. There's probably a lot of fear around a cancer diagnosis and, you know, people may feel, oh, I'm not fit enough to start exercising. Um, or this might affect my healing. It might affect my treatment. It might affect my surgery. I might get sick. So really, it's very important that um, we kind of try and dispel these fears and Exercise has a role to play in all parts of the journey, um, all parts of the cancer journey. Uh, there's a lot of evidence out there to say that pre-surgery is a really good time to start. Um, if somebody is exercising and is used to exercising, then they need to continue. If somebody has never exercised, then it's okay to start at this stage. Um, so prehab is all around maintaining this fitness. The fitter you are facing into any kind of, a, any kind of a, a, an illness uh, journey, um, then the better you will actually respond. After surgery, then really the whole treatment is around the prevention of complications, prevention of stiffness, prevention of weakness, prevention of pain, prevention of um, inactivity, immobility, falls, uh, stiffness, lack of fitness. During chemotherapy and radiotherapy, there's, you know, um, Honor here earlier on mentioned that, that your nutrition is very important with this kind of chemo 
chemo fog and there's brain fog, but exercise is as well. And there's 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 been a lot of evidence out there to say that exercise can actually uh, improve your cognitive function, can improve your 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 reduce your risk, I suppose, of this chemo brain. It can also reduce your um, chemo-induced fatigue. And that kind of sounds like a contradiction because sometimes people feel, oh, I'm really, really tired. I'm too tired to exercise. I can't exercise. But actually, the evidence is out there that that starting an exercise program can actually help to reduce this fatigue. And there is also some some studies done on mice to say that exercise during chemotherapy can actually improve your response to the medication. But, you know, um, I suppose that, 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 that we need to wait and see really if that will transfer over to the human population. Post-treatment and in the recovery phase, well, exercise is absolutely invaluable at this stage um, to try and get people back, I suppose, into functioning and back into their normal activities of daily living, that confidence in themselves, that um, feeling of self-worth, feeling of self-esteem and um, that ability to get back to get back in action, really. And lifelong. There's been a lot of talk earlier on. Katrina mentioned it and you did as well, Francis, I think about survivorship. But really, it's not good enough to say that we survived cancer, that we've added years to our lives. We really want to add life to our years. So it's all about having that improved quality of life. And there's a huge role really in making exercise a, a regular part of your day, a regular part of your routine um, in, in maintaining your physical function in maintaining your fitness and in maintaining your mental health, I suppose, and your social worth. So just some considerations in somebody with a cancer diagnosis, depending on what part of the, um, what stage of the journey they're at. Um, so obviously enough, if somebody's had recent surgery, then we need to be mindful that healing occurs, that we're not putting any um, strain or stress on unhealed wounds um, or, or weakened muscles. Uh, fatigue, as I said, uh, exercise has been shown to reduce the, the, the fatigue associated with chemotherapy. But, you know, if somebody is absolutely exhausted, if they're extremely wiped, then we've got to be, you know, sensible about things as well. Um, you know, so just just to bear that in mind, not to be putting people under pressure uh, to act to take part in an exercise program if they really absolutely aren't fit for it. But as I said earlier on, you know, start small, build on it and make it regular. Anemia. Um, so again, that can affect your your lack of energy and your overall fatigue. Uh, active infection, if somebody has an infection then in their body is working, trying to heal um, this infection. So really, we don't want to be superimposing um, the stresses of an exercise program on top of an infection. For some people going through chemotherapy, uh, for all people going through chemotherapy, I suppose they're immunosuppressed. So they are, are at risk of exercise. So these people might not be ideally suited to taking part in a group setting. They may be better off doing their own individual exercise program. But having said that, that doesn't mean that they can't engage in an exercise program. Be mindful of pre-existing conditions. And by these, we mean um, maybe cardiovascular disease, maybe some breathing disorders, maybe some aches and pains. Um, so, you know, seek medical advice really to, to, get, to get clearance to, to commence your exercise program. But usually pre-existing medical conditions are not a contraindication. It does not mean that you cannot exercise if you've had a heart attack or if you've had a knee replacement or if you've got back pain. Usually exercise makes all of these things an awful lot better. Treatment side effects. So we need to be mindful of somebody's treatment for their cancer. Um, so um, peripheral neuropathy would be one of the one of the side effects, I suppose, where there's a lack of sensation in the, the feet and in the hands. So people may be more at risk of falls. They may not be actual. They may not respond to, I suppose, balance challenges as quickly as somebody without a balance, without a peripheral neuropathy or osteoporosis. Some of the treatments for cancers can actually cause your bones to thin. So um, you may be more at risk of 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 injury or more at risk of 
a, a fracture really if you if you were unsteady or if you if you were to have a fall. Uh, bear in mind the cancer site. So again, if you have a bone cancer, we just need to be kind of mindful that we're not giving high impact um, um, balancing, challenging balance um, um, exercises to, to somebody that may increase their risk of having a fall. Um, also, maybe if somebody's had breast cancer, then we need to be mindful about any kind of upper limb activity, just that there may be some 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 stiffness there and maybe somebody may need an individualized kind of targeted stretching program before they're ready to embark on a group exercise program. Pain and stiffness in general, pain and stiffness responds really, really, really well to exercise. It can be a little bit sore getting started and there can be a lot of pain. So again, it's start gradually and build on it and then pre-existing poor fitness. Don't think that if you've been a couch potato before you've had a cancer diagnosis that you're going to be running a marathon the minute you, um, you the minute you start this exercise program, you're going to have to build on it and and um, and increase your um, your your overall fitness. Um, so there's some, as well as the health benefits I've already mentioned to exercise, there are some really special extra benefits um, to be had um, around the whole kind of cancer. Um, there's primary, there's really good. Uh, strong evidence that's just been um, published before Christmas in November from the American College of Sports Medicine to say that people who exercise, who meet the exercise guidelines and the exercise requirements, um, reduce their risk of developing these following following seven types of cancer. And that's really, really good for us to know that the strong evidence that you can reduce the risk of bladder, breast, colon, endometrial, esophageal, renal and gastric cancers. So people who exercise to the recommended levels are at a less risk of developing these type of cancers. But there's also some evidence out there to say that if you've already had a cancer diagnosis, that starting an exercise program and embarking on um, um, embarking on an exercise program can actually reduce your risk of developing a secondary cancer or reduce your risk of cancer recurring. And that's really reassuring for us all to be aware of. Um, this, of course, you can't see, but this is from the um, American College of Sports Medicines. And this is just listing out the benefits to be had for cancer survivors um, from embarking on an exercise program. And there's strong evidence to say that um, um, if you meet the exercise requirements, that you can reduce cancer related fatigue. That's really important. Um, you have an improvement in your health related quality of life for a number of different reasons. I suppose if you're less tired, if you feel fitter, if you feel stronger, if you've got higher self-esteem, then obviously you'll be happier with your quality of life. Your overall physical function, that makes sense. If we can maintain our mobility, maintain our muscle strength, maintain our general fitness, then we'll function better. Um, can reduce the risk of anxiety, which I've said earlier on, uh, reduce the risk of depression and there is insufficient evidence to say that exercise will reduce the risk of lymphedema, but what they are actually saying is that it will it won't exacerbate um, it, lymphedema. So just to bear that in mind, and there's moderate evidence then for um, for the, the 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 maintenance of bone health and the um, and your quality of your sleep. Really, I think it's very important when we talk about the whole cancer management thing that we really um, that we don't underestimate the power of lifestyle factors. So here, you know, that we do consider exercise and diet really as 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 a significant part in the management of our overall um, cancer journey. Um, there's actually one nice quotation here just at the end of it. And this is from Hippocrates, who was the father of medicine. He was around two and a half thousand years ago. And he said back then, walking is man's best medicine. So really, it's not a new phenomenon. But I think we've just underestimated the importance of activity and, and physical exercise programmes. Good to speak will be Dr. Mary Rogan on sexual health and its importance for cancer patients. So what is sexuality? Sexuality is a nice sounding word. There is a definition. 
uh, refers to our capacity to derive pleasure from sexual activity and to arouse sexual interest in others. Woody Allen put it very simply. He said, sex is the most fun you can have without laughing. And I think that's a very good <laughs> description and I think that'll do for me. Just to say that along with being what it is, very, very important and a part of many people's lives, sex is also a human right. And the Direct Declaration of Human Rights is a statement on sexual rights proclaimed at the World Congress of Sexuality run by the World Health, Sexual Health Association for Sexual Health in Valencia. And it's a human right under the World Health Organization's Declaration of Human Rights. So we need to remember that. So the next thing we need to look at is why do people have sex? Well, in 2007, two great researchers, one of whom I was priv privileged to meet at a meeting last year, Cindy Meston and David Buss, did a literature review. They did a trawl through the literature and they found out, they wanted to know exactly why people have sex and how many reasons there are. And they found 237. Now, we won't go through all of them, but I mean, <laughs> the main ones to me are physical reasons. Uh, they, uh, well, I suppose the first one is pleasure. The second one is bonding with your partner. The third one is uh, procreation, to have a baby. The fourth one is um, it relieves stress. Uh, it causes relaxation. It's actually good for the health. People who have regular sex uh, have less heart attacks, strokes and other illnesses. So it's not just uh, something that you do for fun. It's actually good for your health as well. And it's a human right. Uh, there are a whole lot of other reasons, guarding your mate, making sure that your husband or wife doesn't go off with someone else, uh, to, get, to get ahead in the world, to marry up socially, it's an important one as well. So how do humans have sex? And we didn't know how humans had sex, really, on, because it was all theoretical and it was all very um, psychoanalytical and Freud was one of the first people in, in uh, recent times to talk about sex and it was all very psychoanalytical until the 50s and the 60s, the middle of the last uh, century, when William Masters and Virginia Johnson actually did uh, research on how the human body responds during sex. And they came up with what we call the EPOR model, excitement, plateau, orgasm and resolution. And I mean, they're self-explanatory, excitement, rapid heartbeat, rapid breathing, flushing of the chest and the abdomen, uh, swelling and lubrication of the vulva, uh, erection of the clitoris, erection of the penis, uh, followed by a plateau stage where the sensations, which should be pleasurable, are at their height, followed by orgasm, which I won't explain to you, uh, you should know yourselves, and followed by resolution, which is a return to the pre-excitement stage. But they left out one very important thing. They left out the most important sexual organ in the body, which is not the heart, not the lungs, not the skin, all important, not the sexual uh, areas, but the brain. Because sex begins in the brain and it begins with desire. So the most important sexual organ in the body is the brain. And I gave this original presentation in Vienna last year, uh, the home of Freud and the home of Helen Kaplan, who put together that model. And Helen Kaplan had to leave Vienna at the age of 13 because she was Jewish and go to New York where she ended her life and uh, unfortunately died very young. So that's how we have sex. So why sexual dysfunction occurs? Well, it can happen with age. So blood vessels and nerves can age. Men lose testosterone at a rate of 1% per year over the age of 40. Ignorance. Ignorance is huge. Lack of information on how things work. I see an awful lot of young people who are absolutely petrified and 
full of anxiety and either the guy can't get an erection or ejaculates too quickly or the, the girl has either sexual pain or vaginismus and can't allow anything inside her vagina because they're so terrified. And they've maybe internalised messages that they were given growing up about how sex is dirty or it's not quite nice or it's not something you talk about, not to mind, do. So um, lack of information is huge. Anxiety is huge. With anxiety, you secrete adrenaline. And when you secrete, secrete adrenaline, that overwhelms all the sexual um, um, responses of the body, uh, even guys who are taking, young guys who are taking Viagra for uh, erectile dysfunction or Cialis, they'll tell me that, oh, I took it a few times and it worked and now it stopped working. And that's because they're still so anxious. Um, the adrenaline is overwhelming the effect of the tablet. Illness, blood vessels, red flag, uh, diabetes, red flag I put there, and everybody should know this. If your husband, friend, brother, whatever, father, is developing erectile dysfunction, particularly in his 40s or older. It's a red flag for coronary heart disease. And the reason for that is that the penile artery is a very small artery. And if there's damage to the lining of the penile artery, then in two to four years, there'll be damage to the coronary arteries. And in four to six, there'll be damage to the arteries, to the brain. And um, you could, by picking this up and by sending them off to get checked out, you could actually save their lives. High blood pressure, diabetes, cancer can all cause difficulties. Medication, you could do a whole uh, presentation on medication. And it's not so much cancer that causes sexual difficulties as the treatment of cancer. And you see, we've become very, very good at treating cancer and cancer survivorship, therefore, is huge. When I was a young, do young doctor last century, there was absolutely no, uh, there was none of this. And the reason for it was that if you saw a patient once or twice with prostate or um, bowel or breast cancer, that was all you saw them. You didn't see them after that because they didn't survive. They died. So we weren't looking at sexual difficulties or cancer survivorship or need for so, uh, psychological support. They could have done with it at the time and there was absolutely nothing. There was no hospice. There was nothing. But they didn't live long enough for it to become a huge problem for us. So any intervention with illness, surgery, radiotherapy, chemotherapy can cause difficulties. So if... You'll be told this at your first probably visit when you get your diagnosis. And this is where I think my colleagues in, in, in the health services, in my, my doctor and nurse colleagues who do an excellent job, this is where I think they fall down a small bit. You see, sexuality is a topic that's kind of swept under the carpet. It's something that's not talked about. And we need to get into the habit of talking about it. And this is what I say to my students whom I see every week in my clinic. You need to talk to people about sex. You need to, you need to give them permission to tell you if they have a sexual difficulty. And as I said in the opening address, three thirds. One third will just want it validated. They'll just want to mention that they have it. One third will require a simple intervention. One third will require more um, specialised uh, treatment. So I say to them, any doctor, any nurse can help with two out of three patients who come in with a sexual difficulty after cancer, and they should be doing that. I nicked this slide of one of my colleagues in the European Society of Sexual Medicine, not this slide, another slide. And there were obviously two sides to this. And one is the difficulties that doctors have discussing sexual health with patients and the difficulty that patients have discussing it with doctors. And I'm not going to go through it other than to say that when I started to play around with it and try and tidy it up and fix the language, because whoever wrote it initially, English wasn't their first language, I found that the 
we both had the same difficulties, doctors and uh, patients. We both have the same difficulties. Uh, discomfort, embarrassment, time, lack of confidence, doctor's age, patient's age, lack of context, uh, not knowing where the patient is coming from. Social context is huge in, in when we're dealing with sexual dysfunction and indeed in other areas. You need to know, uh, have they a partner, uh, what their sex life was with the partner was before, what their relationship with the partner is, what their setup is, have they a home? Some people don't even have a home. They may be renting, they may have lost their home, they may be couch surfing somewhere. So you need to know all this information. Finally, how do you deal with it? Okay, you've had your cancer diagnosis, you've had your cancer treatment, you've been told at your first appointment, this is uh, what you have, you've decided what treatment you're going to have, and then you've, you go away and you go home. You're also told the side effects of the treatment, by the way. And I know this, this comes into me all the time. You're told there may be sexual side effects and with prostate cancer in particular, which I see a lot of prostate cancer survivors, you, they'll have problems with continence. But the sexuality part and indeed the incontinence part goes over a lot of people, people's heads. And I was reminded of it the other day, I was at a funeral and somebody said, will you have coffee? And I said, no, I'm going to need to pee too soon afterwards. It wouldn't suit me. And my elderly aunt looked at me and said, TMI, Mary. But basically, TMI is what's happening in this particular case where you're told what your cancer diagnosis is, you've decided on your treatment and you're told about side effects. The uh, uh, diagnosis of cancer and the news that you have cancer is so huge, you really can't take in anything else. And again, where we are falling down, wearing my hat as a doctor, we're falling down on not asking patients every time they come to the clinic, every time we see them, are things okay? And I say to my students, you don't need to have a big um, intricate introduction or you don't need to have a big long um, um, uh, survey or whatever for them to fill out. All you need to do is ask them. Some of them are asking for logarithms and things. And I say to them, I think that takes away from the empathy between the patient and the doctor. Uh, and I think it's an awful lot easier to say, are you having difficulties with intimacy? And if they look at you blankly, then you qualify that by saying, are you having difficulties with sexuality? So except there will be change. I, I wrote this, adapt, and I just flicked through it very quickly. You've read that and you accept there will be change. You need to accept, you're not going to be the same way as you were before. Francis, you were saying that in the centre there were more women than men seen. We find both in psychosexual therapy and in the clinic and in my own private practice, I see more men than women. And I think that reflects the fact that men retain an interest in sex far longer in life than women. And there was a, a literature review done recently by some of my colleagues in the European Society, and they were wondering, why is this the case? Are we failing women? Should we be doing more to make sure this doesn't happen? Because it still causes distress among couples. Don't despair, don't give in to despair. I mean, you know, if you're going to panic, let it be organised. But literally, don't despair. Things will improve. Remember, the brain is the largest sexual organ. Your brain is not affected by pelvic cancer surgery. You can stay connected. The importance of touch is huge. And that was reflected in the um, results of the, of the research. The healing touch seems to have given the most benefit to patients. And that's really, really important. And this was for prostate cancer, so... Um, you know, you, you can you can extend this to other cancers. Uh, use sex toys, use vibrators, uh, vacuum pumps, other aids. Use whatever you can to improve your sex life, improve your repertoire. 
prepare. This re refers to a word we used to use is penile rehabilitation. We now talk about sexual rehabilitation. And that's why uh, men in particular who are going to have an intervention that might cause erectile dysfunction, they'll need to be uh, put on some medication and other options prior, maybe uh, told about other options prior to surgery. I haven't really time to go into it in more detail. Talk. Now, that's hugely important. Talk to your healthcare provider. Talk to your partner. Talk to your doctor, whether it be urologist or your GP. Talk to your urology specialist nurse. Talk to your breast nurse. Talk to your um, colorectal nurse, your stoma nurse. They do absolutely fabulous work and you need to um, you need to use their expertise. If you sit there and you don't ask, I'm always saying to the students, and because I was a terrible student myself, I was always down the back of the group or down the back of the class dodging, being asked questions. And <laughs> sometimes I'd have a question. I, I wouldn't ask it because I was afraid it would be thought stupid. And, you know, there's no such thing as a stupid question. Not asking it, not asking it is the stupid part. Uh, Seek out and talk with other cancer survivors in your local cancer survivor groups, whether that's on a one-to-one -one basis or whether it's on a group basis. The reluctance of people to talk in groups is one thing. They will open up, and this is what the students find when they shadow me in the clinic, they will open up, patients will open up about sexuality if they're given uh, an opportunity. Thanks for listening. And I want to read you a poem quickly because I think it encapsulates everything the centre does. And to mention a book called The Power of Kindness, written by Dr Brian Goldman, which again says how important the, uh, how important the role of kindness, how important the role of healing touch. And that needn't be just a formal healing touch session. It could be a pat on the arm. It could be a hug. Uh, is, to, uh, is to all of us when we're feeling down, when we need support. So this is written by um, a Californian poet called Danusha Lemaris. And it's entitled uh, Small Kindnesses. And it says, I've been thinking about the way when you walk down a crowded aisle, people pull in their legs to let you by. Or how strangers will say bless you when someone sneezes, a leftover from the bubonic plague. Don't die, we are saying. And sometimes when you spill lemons from your grocery bag, someone else will help you to pick them up. Mostly, we don't want to harm each other. We want to be handed our cup of coffee hot and to say thank you to the person handing it, to smile at them and for them to smile back. For the waitress to call us honey when she sets down the bowl of clam chowder and for the driver in the red pickup truck to let you pass. We have so little of each other now, so far from tribe and fire. Only these brief moments of exchange. What if they are the true dwelling of the holy, these fleeting temples we make together when we say, here, have my seat, go ahead, you first, I like your hat.